The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 121, can be found in the Pew Bible on page 516. Please stand. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Well, good morning once again. Thank you, Doran, for reading. Uh, Let's pray once more as we get started. Father, thank you for this morning, for your word that endures forever, that is living and active. And I pray, God, that as I deliver this message today, that you would work in the hearts and minds of your people of Westgate, that they would hear this word with faith and love, lay it up in their hearts and treasure it, practice it in their lives. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are considering the core commitment of prayer. Uh, prayer, of course, is a big topic, which means we can't say everything on prayer that we might like. Uh, so I decided to focus on one aspect of prayer that really undergirds the whole practice. It's repeated a couple times in the way we wrote our core commitment, so I'm going to begin with that. The core commitment reads, Prayer is the church's most important work, the foremost expression of our dependence on God. It is vital to our relationships with God and each other, and essential for fruitful service Prayer begins, excuse me, prayer brings both the individual and the church into union with God, centers our lives on Him, and leads us to ask for God's kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ will not be treasured above all things if God does not show up, and since we, the way we express our dependence on God is through prayer, nothing we do in His name or service will amount to anything if we are not first and faithfully devoted to prayer. A big commitment. A lot is said there. But you'll notice that the statement begins and ends by describing prayer as expressing our dependence on God. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning, understanding and seeing prayer as an act, an expression of divine dependence. And just as a personal note, uh, as we get started, I want to say I chose this core commitment because I knew that I needed to grow in this area. So if anything that I say um, convicts you this morning, just know it convicted me first. Uh, With all that said, we're looking at Psalm 121, and we're looking at this psalm for two reasons. First, as we said already, we're focusing on divine dependence, and what better way to think about our dependence, to think about our need for God's help, And second, I chose this psalm because it's part of a group of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And as our brother 
Brandon Levering once said, he called these songs uh, the holy mixtape of Israel. It was their go-to Spotify playlist for their road trip to Jerusalem as they went to worship. And I point this out because this journey and the singing of songs was a corporate endeavor. Likewise, as we consider prayer, we're not only understanding and appreciating this core commitment for what it means for us individually, but we focus on it and what it means for us as Westgate, as the people of God. But we're going to begin with the individual. And so consider uh, a handful of questions with me as we get started. Think of a time when you needed help. Can you think of a time when you needed help? Where were you? What was the issue that you had? A time when you needed help. Here's the second question. Who do you turn to when you need help? Who's that person that you look to? Who's, who do you put down as an emergency contact? When have you needed help, and who have you turned to? These sorts of questions are relevant for our passage and for the commitment and, and act of prayer, because knowing our need and knowing who to turn to gets at the very basics of prayer. And what we'll see in our psalm today is that uh, because God is capable and caring, we should pray to Him for help. Because God is capable and caring, we should pray to Him for help. Look at verse 1 again with me. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? People disagree over the significance of the hills in verse 1. Uh, could it be just an encouragement, an encouraging reminder as they look up? As many of you know, there are scriptural examples of mountains which speak to the safety of God. Uh, or is it a sobering acknowledgement that danger lies ahead? You know, we also see in scripture that robbers would prey on people as they journeyed among the hills. And both readings are defensible. I'll say I'm convinced of the latter. Uh, here's why, very quickly. You know, viewing the hills as danger, I think, fits with the rest of the psalm. If you look at verses 3 to 8, they describe, in a sense, the treacherous journey ahead. Feet are moving, rest is taking place, all being done under the heat of sun, the cool of night. And second, as one of the first, in fact, the second song of ascent, it makes sense that it would be sung as a group closer to their departure than their arrival. And so the hills in question could be the hills to travel through in order to get to the temple. Again, a path which was no cakewalk given the enemies and the elements. Now, we could just as easily make this point from verse 7, but I think it's important to make here. The point being that when the psalmist acknowledges the dangers that lie ahead and then asks the question, the psalmist is recognizing their need. They see the hills and know they need help. And for the psalmist, it's a rhetorical question. To, they have the answer. So it's more like saying they see the hills and they know that they have help. We hear that in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Do you and I recognize that we need God's help? Do we recognize we need God's help? Just like these Jewish worshipers, we're pilgrims too. Before we meet God and rest with him forever, there are hills we need to journey through. And danger lies ahead because of sin. 
It's still present with us. As we journey through this fallen world, we suffer from sickness, we deteriorate as we age, we grieve loved ones who pass, we witness natural disasters, we can experience betrayal and notice injustices. There's so many, so many things that we could say. Uh Uh-oh. So many things I want to say. And we're okay. (laughs) Uh, There's so many things that we can face, hardships in this world. But again, do we know that we have a need, that God has to help us, that we need God's help? And we hear this question, from where does my help come? Is that an unanswered question for us? Is it an unanswered question for us, or is it a rhetorical question for us? We may very well have people we look to and trust with helping us, and that's good. I hope everyone has that person or group of people that we know we can lean on for help. However, when that question is posed, the first answer for the Christian and for the church should be God. It is good to receive help from friends, families, and experts, but we must understand that all that help is secondary. It's subservient to God's help. God's help is primary, and we look to him firstly with all confidence because he is capable. Uh, Have you heard the expression, moving heaven and earth? We may say, uh, I'll move heaven and earth to find you the perfect gift, or I'll move heaven and earth to make sure you get what you need. And as an expression, it's, it's hyperbolic, and we put it, we say it to convey the commitment the person has to helping the other person. Uh, it's not hyperbolic for God. It's not hypothetical either. He can move heaven and earth because he made heaven and earth. And so we know God can help us because he made us. Our God, who is capable of creating all of us, is capable of helping all of us. And so a very simple takeaway from these first two verses is simply to say, God is our capable helper. So we should pray to him. He's our capable helper. So we should pray to him. Now, while we may acknowledge our need and God's capability, we should note that there are still real obstacles to prayer, obstacles you could be familiar with, and I want to consider one. Before we get there, let's just admit there's a lot of things we know that are good for us, but don't practice. For example, I know that eating fruits and vegetables is great, but my diet does not reflect that. Uh, We know that if our engine light uh, starts blinking, that we should go and take it in, get it checked out, but sometimes we just rather, you know, make a few more errands before we get to the mechanic, before the problem really shows up. We know that if we have a conflict with another person, it's a good thing to talk it out, to communicate, but sometimes it feels like too much effort, right? We would rather just say nothing. Uh, Well, maybe we view prayer like that, We know that it's good, but we don't practice it. And there could be many reasons for this again, but here's one. We might feel, one obstacle to prayer is that we may feel like we just don't need it. Why bother asking for daily bread when I can just run to Market Basket? Why ask for God's help when I can put together a a five-year plan, a detailed plan? 
Why ask for help when I'm perfectly capable of helping myself? And I don't bring it up to draw lines in the sand for what we should and shouldn't pray for, but uh, what I hope to provoke in you is a little reflection. You know, is the disposition of our faith and our heart towards God one of dependence? Are we depending on Him for all things? Do you depend on Him for all things? It's a simple question, but for people like ourselves, there is a risk in acting as though we don't really need God. And it's an independence run amok. It's inappropriate self-sufficiency. And it's not only a Christian problem, it's a human problem. Writing 60 years ago, this theologian, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, stated the problem this way. He said, the human ego assumes its self-sufficiency and self-mastery and imagines itself secure. It does not recognize the contingent and dependent character of its life and believes itself to be the author of its own existence. We don't like being contingent and dependent, but we shouldn't fall into thinking that we can live lives independent from God. You remember James when he says, don't say you'll do this or that thing today or tomorrow. You don't know. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You can't say you're going to do this or that tomorrow. You should say, if the Lord wills, then I will do this or that thing. And it's uncomfortable to admit, but we are contingent and dependent. But we need to. Even Jesus reminds us of this when he asks, which of you can add a single hour to his life? And we can't, but God can. And to know whether or not we suffer from this kind of inappropriate independence, we can look to our prayer lives. H.B. Charles Jr. put it this way, and shout out to Pastor Travis pointing out this quote to me. H.B. writes, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. Think of it this way. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. Uh, Today, we rightly teach younger men and women to be independent. In our own culture, at least, we often set the goal for youth that says, you know, one day you will move on, you'll get out of here, and you'll find a way to provide for yourself. You'll be independent. And so it's no surprise that as Christians, we carry some of that thinking into our relationship with God. And in addition to that, we also read a command in Scripture that God gives us and expects us to carry out, right? Right? There are ways of living that we're responsible for. And so we think, okay, i got to take care of that, do that myself. But we shouldn't disconnect our lives and God-given responsibilities from God. For families, it's perfectly reasonable to expect our kids to move from dependency to independence. But when it comes to our faith, our relationship with God, there is no such transition. And if anything, a mark of maturity is moving from dependency to greater dependency. It's recognizing our ever-growing need for God's help for all that we do. It's recognizing that as capable as we are, God is more capable. Recognizing that our diligent work is not divorced from dependency on God. And so we pray. And we reflect, is this the disposition of our hearts? Are we depending on God in prayer? In preparation for this message, 
I've been reading a wonderful book. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And I mention it because uh, that book really shaped this message and my thinking on this. And something that stood out to me from Miller's book has to do with this topic of divine dependence in, in Psalm 121. Uh, for Miller, before we can say, my help comes from the Lord, we have to admit, I am helpless. For Miller, he says, prayer uh, equals helplessness. Prayer equals helplessness. The sooner we recognize our need, that we are helpless, the sooner we can know that God is our help. So God, the maker of heaven and earth, is our capable helper. So we should pray to him. But not only is he our capable helper, he is also our caring helper, which brings us to verses 3 to 8. Look at those verses with me. In them we see, we find these descriptions of God's intimate care for his people. In verses 3 and 4, we see that God is watching every footstep of their journey through every hour of their rest. In verses 5 and 6, we see that God is their shade from the hot sun. In verses 7 and 8, we see that God guards their lives from evil, guards them as they come and go. And with every action, God's care can be seen. God cares for the specifics and for the general things. And the way that this care comes out and is emphasized is with the term keeper. Now, keeper uh, is not a word that we use all that often. At least I don't, but we hear it come up here and there. You know, at Westgate, we have a bookkeeper. Uh, for those who play soccer, there's a goalkeeper, right? But in both of those examples, the items being cared for are inanimate. We got money and, and soccer balls. But when keeper comes up in Scripture, as it's being used in Psalm 121, typically the referent of keeping is people. And a famous but tragic instance of this occurs in the story of Cain and Abel. You'll remember, you'll remember that after Cain killed Abel, God asks Cain, where is your brother, Abel? And what is Cain's famous reply? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, in Psalm 121, God stands in stark contrast to Cain and for everyone else, for that matter. Six times in verses 3 to 8, the psalmist refers to God as their keeper. Other translations may have protector. In either case, we hear God's concern for the well-being of his people. And so to say that God is keeping his people is to say that God is caring for his people, which again has implications for prayer. Uh, again, we know praying would be good for us, but sometimes we don't practice. And again, one of those reasons is we feel like we don't need it. Another obstacle to prayer might be that we feel like God doesn't care. We might feel as though our needs are so insignificant that God wouldn't trouble himself with such things. But I want to assure you that if God is your keeper, then God cares about your needs. If I can revisit that author, Paul Miller, once more, he tells this great story about this interaction he had with his mom. As someone who wrote a book on prayer, he has an interest in the topic, so he's reading another book on prayer. Uh, he doesn't name the book, but he recalls that author suggesting that we shouldn't pray for trivial things like parking spots. In that author's mind, praying for parking spots was a selfish thing. Uh, and having read that author's stance, Paul's first response was to say, can't wait to tell my mom about this. And Paul's mom at the time was an 82-year-old woman working as a missionary in London. 
Uh, but she wasn't new to missions. Prior to that, after all their kids had grown up and moved away, his mother and father had gone to missions and served in several countries before landing in London. And when Paul met his mom for breakfast one morning, and he told her about this author's stance on praying for parking spots, that he frowned on it, uh, his mother, hearing that, gave it some thought, looked perplexed, and after a moment, with a big smile, replied, how else would I find a parking spot? (laughs) And what Paul points out to his readers is that his mom was not selfish to pray for parking spots. In doing so, she was demonstrating her utter dependence on God, down to the seemingly unworthy small details. And so if we're tempted to say, I don't know if God cares about this, I don't know if I want to trouble God with such a small thing, remember that God cares about the steps that we take that he is always keeping watch over us. Therefore, you should pray. You should make your need known, however small, because he cares. And it's a good thing that he isn't just capable of helping us, but that he cares about helping us. You can probably think of an interaction in which you were helped, but you weren't cared for, or better yet, that you were the one technically helping someone else, but didn't care about them. Like when someone, bo- someone bothers you at work to show them uh, how to use the copy machine for the you know, 15th time, and you say, okay, I'll help, but you're just full of passive-aggressive rage. Or another, another example that comes to mind is this character from Parks and Rec. This show, there's this doctor who has no emotion, no sympathy, no empathy, no bedside manner at all. Uh, and everyone he treats technically gets help, right? They get an answer, they get prescription, um, but they all have terrible experiences with him because he has no care for them. Hopefully your doctor is not like that. In Psalm 121, we see that God is most certainly not like that. When you walk, he watches. When you sleep, he stays awake. When you're going through life, he's guarding you from evil. God cares for you. He cares for us. So we should pray to him. Ask him for help, whether your needs are large or small. Express your dependence on God by telling him how much you need him. Well, these Jewish pilgrims who sang this psalm on their way to worship could look back on the ways that God had helped his people. They could be confident in his character because all the ways God acted on their behalf in their lives. But for us today, we can have even greater confidence, greater conviction of the the words of this psalm because of Jesus. We know God is capable and caring because of Christ. We can say, God is my help because Christ is my hero. We can say, God is our keeper because Christ was crucified. Only Christ was capable of creating the heavens and earth. Only Christ is capable of continually holding all things together, as Paul says. Only Christ was capable of living a sinless life. Only Christ was capable of taking on the sins of the world. And only Christ was capable of rising from the dead and taking a seat at the right hand of the Father. And again, the reason he did any of this, a core motivation behind all of his actions was his care for us, his love for us. And hopefully this isn't too wordy of an explanation, but 
when we step back and consider all of redemptive history, including what's to come, it's the gospel that ties everything together. And here's my way of trying to demonstrate just how Scripture presents our helper to us. The one who made heaven and earth left heaven and came to earth to help us so that we could be with him in the new heavens and new earth forever. The one who made heaven and earth left heaven and came to earth to help us so that we could be with him in the new heavens and new earth forevermore. And when we look at passages like Psalm 121, especially verses 7 and 8, we can say with confidence, I know the Lord will keep me from evil because he suffered evil on my behalf. I know the Lord will keep my life because he died to give me life. I know the Lord will keep me as I come and go forever because his care lasts forever. The gospel, Jesus, gives us all the more confidence to depend on God for everything. And to draw out what we've been saying a little bit further, I want to turn our attention quickly to the letter of Hebrews. In chapter 4, the author writes this. This is verses 14 and 16 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And even in this passage, again, we see the capability and the care of Christ. Christ was capable of passing through the heavens, becoming incarnate, one of us, yet remaining without sin. And as verse 16 points out, we read of his grace, his mercy, his help. In a word, his care. And to use the verbiage of Hebrews, because of Jesus, we can confidently draw near, confidently pray, to the one who helps. Uh, before I close, a word on corporate prayer and some takeaways. Uh, a lot of what I said this morning focuses on the individual, uh, but the core commitment matters for us as a group, as a people. We should be devoted to prayer. We should be devoted to prayer. Excuse me, as a people, at every turn, encouraging one another to pray. And I had a great interaction a few months back that I think fits here. Uh, as many of you know. Uh, Stephanie and I have been serving as foster parents for the last four months or so, and we've had several children come through our home, but I'll never forget our first placement, uh, which was a pair of siblings, two young kids. And in our home, you know, we do our best to have a habit of prayer, but life gets busy, chores need to happen, things need to get done. And I'll never forget this, uh, there was a couple of times where we were getting situated for dinner, uh, which at times felt like an Olympic sport, trying to get four kids at the table, running back and forth from the kitchen to the dining room. And after getting all the food out and finally sitting down and started eating, these siblings right away said, Mr. Eric, Mr. Eric, you forgot to pray. <laughs> and again, when we were getting ready for bed, after we were done frantically, again, getting four kids in pajamas and tucked into bed, uh, I read a book, sang a song, hit the lights, was headed for the door, and they said, Mr. Eric, Mr. Eric, you forgot to pray. And as God's people, as Westgate, we should embody that kind of attitude of prayer, where we are vigilant not to neglect it in all that we do. 
And so if I could distill my sermon down to the simple message, it would echo what those children said to me, Westgate, Westgate, don't forget to pray. Two takeaways for you. Uh, one that is immediate, it can be practiced today, and another that you can give some reflection. Uh, Today, after our service, we have a monthly Pray for the Mission gathering, and I'm not sure I will ever get an easier application for a sermon than today. (laughs) So after the benediction, after we say our hellos, please join us for prayer in the parlor as we pray for God's help and for our friends serving all over the world. And if you can't stay for that, uh, at the very least, please take one of these yellow sheets available out in the foyer. You'll see them available with postcards and other material we'll get to in a second. But on that sheet, you'll see lists of needs and requests for missionaries who are serving all over the world. So please take use of that. Lastly, my message today on prayer is the last in this sermon series we've been doing, focusing on our core commitments. And just for the sake of review, I'm going to tell you what they are again. There's eight of them. God-centered worship, biblical exposition, prayer, life-on-life discipleship, Christ-centered community, local outreach, church planting, and global missions. Uh, You can find them on our website. There's also a little insert available in the foyer if you'd like to see that. But here's the takeaway. Look at that list and choose one to pray for. You can pray for all of them if you like. That'd be great. But whatever you choose, pray for the commitment. Pray for us as a church that as Westgate, as a group of believers, pray that we would be faithful to that core commitment. Pray that we would grow in that core commitment. Pray for Westgate. So let's together demonstrate, together, to demonstrate to God that we depend on him. Again, God is capable and caring, so we should pray to him for help. Let's do that now. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm telling us and demonstrating to us that you are our help. Thank you that the one who made heaven and earth is available to us in prayer. Pray that as we head out from this place, that as we go into our respective neighborhoods and communities, our workplaces and families, that all of us would be depending on you in prayer in all those venues and whatever the day brings. Thank you for being a God who is near and who hears us at all times. And God, hear the prayers of your church, Westgate, as we seek to be faithful to you, as we seek to live for your glory, as we seek to treasure you in all that we do. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.